Arnold Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony, Opus 9, is a tremendously important piece of music, sitting as it does right in the gap between the end of great romanticism and the beginning of the 20th century, atonality, century of wars, apocalyptic visions in the terms of the development of humankind. There are different strands of romantic thought at work in this piece, but not wholesomely applied to each other. A box of magic tricks, you might say, which is starting to malfunction, albeit in a highly organized fashion. It's interesting, I think, to think about the precedence to this piece. It's just 15 solo instruments, very much a chamber ensemble of soloists. The first and most obvious precedent to that is Wagner Siegfried Idel, written as a birthday present for his wife to be performed in their house. And latterly, Mahler's Kindertotenlieder, written between 1901 to 4, the first great example of the modern chamber orchestra. And you have to remember just how much Schoenberg admired Mahler. He heard Mahler's Third Symphony in Vienna in 1904 and wrote him as follows, I saw your very soul naked, stark naked. I felt your symphony. I shared in the battling for illusion. I suffered the pangs of disillusionment. I saw the forces of good and evil resting with each other. I saw a man in torment struggling towards inward harmony. Forgive me, I cannot feel by halves. So explicit in Mahler then for Schoenberg, a sense of the end of everything romantic and tonal, becoming inevitable in a sense. And that is what you feel wholeheartedly in the Chamber Symphony Opus 9. It's constructed around three basic building blocks, three really important key characteristics. Firstly, the use of the interval of a fourth. Secondly, of whole tone scales or whole tone intervals. And thirdly, of the relationship of the Neapolitan which is one, literally one note above the tonic. So in E major, which is the root tonality of this piece, looking at F major or F minor, which sound close together. They are close together on a keyboard, but they're actually worlds apart. Let me explore and explain those as we go through. Firstly, in the opening four bars of the piece, you get what I would call cadence one. It's before proper material for development and exposition has even begun. And it's built, in the first instance, on fourths or the suggestion of fourths. So if I ask, first of all, to get the second violin to go B-flat, E-flat, the first violin then comes in on A-flat, you get three-fourths like this. Then the viola goes from a C to an F, and then you get a B-flat in the horn. And finally, you get the cello going from a G-natural to the second horn, playing a C, back to the cello, playing an F. Another sequence of three-fourths. Now, the next thing to show to you is how this relates to the whole tone scale. I'm just going to ask Andrew Sparling, our first clarinetist, to play a whole tone scale for us. So you can hear it automatically has one note less than the standard major scale. That's because each leap is of a whole tone. There are no semitones involved as there would be in any normal major or minor scale.
We'll now play the chord at the beginning of bar three, which is a whole tone chord. All elements come from that same whole tone scale. There's only one note missing. Resolving to F major. Now, this is an absolute key to the understanding of this piece. F major being the Neapolitan key within the context of E major as the major tonality of the piece. Let me show you now the original sketch for this first cadence, which resolves to E major. There is no use of the Neapolitan. It sounds quite odd, particularly after what we've just played. Schoenberg was playing around with that as his first idea. He knew that he had to find a new and different way. He said, the tonic and its Neapolitan are about as remotely related as chords can be. And if we connect them so directly, we're right on that boundary where we can say all chords can be connected with one another, even these two. Directly following that, we get what Schoenberg called the stormy jubilation of the horn, playing a series of fantastically ebullient fourths. And those fourths, in a totally dominant way, a domineering way even, blaze a trail right through the work. I just want to show you now what I would call cadence two, the other primary material we get before the exposition starts in earnest. Very important to remember this motif because the slow movement which comes later is built out of it. Now, finally, we get into the first exposition. There are two expositions in this opening section of the Chamber Symphony, Opus 9. Here's the main principal theme, which comes in the cello. Again, essentially based around a whole tone scale with accented fourths, although they don't always sound like that after he's flattened or sharpened them. <laughs> Now, we get on to the second principal theme now of this first exposition section. Schoenberg was apparently worried by the lack of any apparent link between the principal two themes of the first section. And he stopped himself from replacing this second theme that we're going to show you now. And 20 years later, he perceived the true relationship. Robin Michael, our cellist, just play slowly now that first theme we just heard. Now, just highlight the particular pitches which form the basis of the second theme. Now, if you take those five notes and invert them, turn them upside down so they're going down rather than up, that's what you get. And there it is, in a nutshell, that's his second theme. Let's look at what he actually got to it from, from his very first sketches. 
which are very much in E major. Remember, he's trying to find a way ultimately, although I guess he doesn't know it, it's all subconscious, to get to F minor because that's a Neapolitan and he wants again to reinforce that relationship. Here was his first idea for this second theme. Now, I'm going to add in to his second idea, which is a development of the same principal notes, and finding himself into a world of A major at the end, which still essentially counts within terms of E major. He hasn't found his Neapolitan yet, which obviously, subconsciously, he's striving for. Very bright A major at the end. Now here's the final version, finding F minor within it. The Neapolitan he so instinctively knows he needs, but notice that in the cello line he hasn't changed any of the notes. He's just reimagined the harmony around those notes. Well, now we'll play it as it finally emerges in the piece proper. So Shembo believed in music there's no form without logic and no logic without unity, which is one in the eye for the previous 20 years of bulging sensual excess in some quarters of music, but not claiming at the same time that it was a totally cerebral process. I said just now that he only subsequently, 20 years later, realized that this idea was connected to the first idea. So you refer to composition as a slowed down improvisation. Often one cannot write fast enough to keep up with the stream of ideas went on to say that inspirations come unconsciously and you formulate solutions without noticing a problem has confronted you. Which I think is very interesting because most people's image of Schoenberg is of him being rather a kind of hard-nutted, very cerebral individual. The fact is, he believed that so much of his music, or at least the solutions to problems that he perhaps didn't even realize were there, came to him in his sleep or in some kind of altered way that he wasn't, in a primary sense, aware of. Now we get a transition section to the second exposition of this first section of the piece. I want to show you the constituent parts of it. Firstly, the violins and viola leaping up a fifth at each bar line, which is a fourth upside down. So again, we're still very much in fourth territory. Secondly, the cello, the bass, the bass clarinet, the bassoon, and the contrabassoon whole tone ascending scales. Thirdly, flute, oboe, choranglay, and clarinets, whole tone descending scales. And we'll put the whole together. You can hear there is not a note wasted. Okay. 
Okay, so we have the second exposition now, and the first theme is in the viola, which is then picked up by the clarinets. And here, the same second exposition, main theme, but its constituent parts are now parceled out and a new, more airy accompanimental texture comes into being. Did you hear the subtle change in the accompanimental texture, putting the second violin and the cello in triplets, just creating a little bit of unease or disease in the melodic line. Now we get to the second theme of the second exposition. Once more, it's fourth based and whole tone scale based. Do you hear how he uses repetition there in the last bar of the phrase, which is a very unusual thing for Schoenberg to do. There's such a sense of hastiness in this piece. He's constantly on to another thing and another thing and another thing. The very idea of taking time over the same motif at the end of a phrase and repeating it is very unusual. Now, at the end of the second exposition, we get a codetta, which is based on that solo violin line we just heard there, the second exposition, second theme. But the syncopated accompaniment we just heard is gone, and the restless semiquavers, which were part of the first theme of the second exposition, set it in relief. And so he continues. Well, let me just play you the end of this second exposition, a true piece of classical-style finale, which, of course, recurs right at the end of the whole piece. And again, you get the first theme from the first exposition. Now, let's look forward. Material preparing us for a new section. I didn't say earlier, and I should say now, that this piece essentially is in four sections, even though they, they exist without any sense of a break. You get the first movement, that exposition passage of two expositions that we were just exploring, then some bridging material, then a scherzo, which forms the second movement proper, more bridging material, then a slow movement, and then the finale, which is essentially a recapitulation of all the themes and all the ideas expressed throughout the work. So it is still, in this fundamental structural aspect, a classical work. So we've now got this material which prepares us for the scherzo. Do you know what? There's almost a sense of swing in this music, an unusual indulgence in this piece, you might say.
Now he starts cranking up the tension. He takes that tiny opening part of that previous oboe theme, the swung theme, and hypnotizes the viola with it, surrounding it with acid chords which borrow their color from the opening of the piece. Yeah, you just heard the beginning of it there. This amazing horn trail in thirds, which is marked to be played schmetternd. Blared is the literal English translation of that. In other words, the notes are stopped, so the hand is in the bell of the instrument, but with maximum amount of exhalation of air. So you get an amazing squillando, blary quality. Let's play from 37. Literally, like an express train that's lost its brakes, we thunder into the scherzo. And in a brilliant rhythmical adjustment, which Schoenberg is less well known for, let's face it, he moves the bar lines. So you get four beats, essentially, and then you go into three. Really unsettling. Maybe it's his idea of a joke, and after all, the literal translation of the word scherzo is joke. Let's look first of all at the theme, the main theme here, which is in the oboe and the double bass. <laughs> Now, the accompaniment to it is a nervous figuration you get in the viola, the bassoon, and the cor anglais. So, let's look at the join now. We'll go back to the thundering express train of that horn writing, and you'll hear just how, particularly the febrile accompaniment I just showed you, becomes the second theme. We'll get onto that in a minute. <laughs> So, the febrile accompaniment I talked about, which had been in the viola, the cor anglais, and the bassoon, now becomes something which is the second theme proper, which occurs in the first violin and the viola. Here, here's how it is in the first violin. Now, I'm going to add the viola into that, working in canon with the first violin, but as the first violin goes upwards, so the viola deviates downwards, creating a kind of mirror image. Now, we're getting a transition period now through to the second theme of the scherzo, the second theme proper. And you can hear the horns here falling in fourths. Some of them sound like thirds, these intervals, but they're actually just diminished fourths. <laughs> Now, here's the scherzo second theme after that cliffhanger ending. Again, chromatically rising higher, the widening gyre here, you might say. Superb and unprecedented use of the contrabassoon there. Now, there's a development section where Schoenberg puts various tiny melodic and harmonic details under the microscope. But the genius lies in the climax of this section, the recapitulation. So we'll shoot on to there now. 
Now here, it's so brilliant because Schoenberg throws all the elements together. You get the first theme of the scherzo in the winds, the second theme in the horns, and the accompaniment to the first theme as it originally was in the strings. They form part of a very knotty ball. But here they're all together and there's a kind of extreme compression at work and utter lucidity. <laughs> And so once again it begins to unravel. Now the end of the scherzo is very clearly demarcated by fortissimo ease, which you hear very, very strongly in the bulk of the orchestra, and the reappearance of the horn force motif, but now it's descending in an exact mirror image or inversion of that fierce joyousness we heard in it right at the start of the first exposition. <laughs> And then we get into the development section proper. And this is not just a development of the scherzo material, but a development of the whole piece that we've had so far. Now, Berg, who was a great fan, obviously, of this piece, is one of Schoenberg's most famous and most brilliant pupils. He also did a lot of analysis on the piece, and he suggests that you divide the development into three sections, and that's what I'm going to do now. And you find with each of these three sections a progressively greater rhythmic activity. So you get a sense of increase in speed without there really being one. And so on. You hear now the very virtuosic use of the bass clarinet, taking up where Mahler left the instrument and taking it a whole load further forward. The second section of the development, you can hear that second exposition first theme again with the unsettling triplet accompaniment now in the cor anglais and the bassoon. And the fourth-based clarion call drags us back. Now, the third and final section of this development is a very fraught, hushed affair, full of chromaticism, attempts to reinforce the whole tone intervals, are largely doomed here, and that second exposition theme still dominates. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
cutting them off in their prime. The culmination of the development section is this string fortissimo chords that we were just about to hit. The horn figure you heard, rising forth and then descending forth. You'd already heard it in the bass instruments, you'd heard it in the clarinets, you'd heard it in the upper woodwinds as well before that. Reinforcing this sense of fourth. He then takes them and compresses them into these single chords. Now, it's interesting that in addition to being a chord based entirely on fourths, that is also a chord which features the root key, E, and its Neapolitan, F. I'll show you what I mean. If you have the first and second violins playing your F and C respectively, and uh, Robin playing your upper note, just the A. This is the Bible 477. Okay, so have those three notes. There's the F major, that's the Neapolitan. Now the root chord, the E, we've got in the bass and in the G natural, which is the upper of the two notes the viola plays, Bible 477. Put that all together. So you have the very essence of the piece, a combination of fourths and Neapolitan relationship. Now, we're into bridging material to take us through into the slow movement, the emotional hot core of the work as a whole. Let me just show you some of the fragmentation that Schoenberg employs. Flurries of fourths, of course, in various winds over a rattling col legno in the second violin viola cello. Col legno meaning hitting the string with the, with the wood of the bow. Very unnatural effect. Can we play, please, from after the pause, the bar before 78? Again, it's that cadence one material reoccurs five times through the piece as a whole. And again, the Neapolitan triumphs, we get that resolution into F major, but then it splinters in the direction of G major and the slow movement proper. And the theme of this, which you hear in the first violin, derives from cadence two right at the top of the piece. I'm just going to play that again to refresh your memory. Here it is in the slow movement. Now that we get a contrasting theme to that, which is heralded as you heard in viola and double bass, but really comes to the fore with the second violin, then the viola and the cello. And perversely, each deeper instrument, the second violin giving way to the viola, giving way to the cello, comes in in a tessitura in a range which is higher 
than the previous instrument, even though the previous instrument is actually, by its very nature, a higher-pitched instrument. And you hear the cello back now with the slow movement primary theme. And there is continuing development of both that and the subsidiary theme. Now that subsidiary theme gets treated more and more like a cannon, rising up through the orchestra here, the strings initially and latterly clarinets, oboe, flute, giving way to one of the most gloriously hot chords in the whole piece, itself a fuller manifestation of the one we heard starting the slow movement. What follows that mind-bogglingly beautiful and intensely chromatic, romantic music is a very necessary thinning of texture, a partial cessation, taking us back to cadence one material with fourths in the cello and bass and very bright, unusual accents in the flute. now we're into an episode, a transition, which is a continuation or a variation of aspects of the slow movement, but also a chance to spend time in B major. It's curious because all the way through this piece, Schoenberg's been so clear that it's the relationship of the Neapolitan key to the tonic key, that is F major to E major, that's of ultimate importance. But here, he is actually taking us to B major, the dominant chord, which is a much more traditional thing to do in any piece of classical composition, which in itself reinforces the ultimate reassertion of the tonic key. Now, let me just show you some of the development that takes place, a tiny little thematic development. I'm going to take you back to material much earlier in the slow movement, how it starts, in fact. The first violin, the first four notes it plays. So you get a slithering down through two semitones and then a rise of a third. Here's what the viola has at the beginning of this episode transition. So, the same sequence of notes. We'll play now Tutti from there to hear how the ingredients are broadly the same as in the slow movement but the flavor has changed.
and so on. You can hear the delicate, delicate balance of the orchestration. It's interesting, Stravinsky said he didn't like the single strings in this piece. They were often bulked out, apparently, in performances in the 1920s and 30s when the piece was performed in larger halls. And Stravinsky said, these single strings remind me of the economy-sized movie theatre orchestras of the 1920s. However, I do agree that the multiple string version tames and blunts the piece. This is, at the end of the day, chamber music. Nothing more, nothing less. Now we get into the finale section, and the big question for Schoenberg, as for any composer, monumental question, how to bring all of these strands to some sense of finality. So Schoenberg makes a kind of double recapitulation, just like he had a double exposition at the start of the piece. His main aim is to restore E major tonality. As I said, the transition was in B, so he's in the right direction. Absolutely, in four or five fathoms of glorious E major now, Schoenberg does still believe in magic, in the magic of harmony, of tonality. The recap doesn't present more new material, but continues to reinforce the fourths, the whole tones, and the relationship of the Neapolitan. But being as we're short of time in this workshop, I mean, this is a can of worms. If you open it, you could be exploring them forever. We'll look at the very conclusion now. As everything reaches its ultimate climax... It's in orchestrational terms that there's true kind of treasure to be found here. Again, remember the precedent of Kinder Totenlieder, the chamber orchestra, the new high-torque V8 engine for the 20th century, terrifyingly responsive and adrenaline-inducing. Let's look at the various constituent parts that make up this climax. Firstly, you get upward fourths in the violins and viola. Now, the second element... Bass clarinet, bassoon, contrabassoon, cello, and bass. Third section, the winds, upper winds. So, we put all those elements together. The, some of the most startlingly, bristlingly clear, but at the same time utterly dense orchestration. One final point to mention. Just listen to the horns in this closing bars. Gradual, incremental increase of speed within the line. An idea taken directly from classical masters like Mozart. So, resolution... Does this end represent catharsis? One gets a sense that this is only the beginning. A series of splintered refractions making, certainly the world of 1906, rethink some of its fundamental perceptions about integration, disintegration, 
harmony and dissonance. Fifteen individual voices competing for attention. Musical material pressing up against its own technical and expressive limits. Perhaps the last word should go to Schoenberg himself, who considered this piece the climax or last outpost of his tonal, i.e. pre-atonal, period. He says, Here is established a very intimate reciprocation between melody and harmony, in that both connect remote relations of the tonality into a perfect unity, draw logical consequences from the problems they attempt to solve, and simultaneously make great progress in the direction of the emancipation of the dissonance. This progress is brought about here by the postponement of the resolution of passing dissonances to a remote point where, finally, the preceding and omnipresent harshness becomes justified. Well, let's now perform one of the most fundamentally important pieces of the last hundred years, Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony, Opus 9. Excellent device with leader Cleo Gould. <laughs> 